this is Bruce Ellis Benson, the host of Unbecoming. Today we'll be discussing forgiveness, but before we get into that, I'd like to spend a few minutes discussing why I make this podcast. Up until recently, I was a full-time professor. If you're a regular listener, you know that I've worked at such storied institutions as Wheaton College, the Carrie Leuven, and the University of St. Andrews, among others. When I started doing this podcast last year, I was expecting it to be nothing more than a hobby. But the response has been so overwhelmingly positive, I decided to leave the academy and focus on podcasting full-time. Those of you who've heard my story may also realize that moving to podcasting means that I can say, finally, what I really think. And you've responded very positively. Not only is it encouraging to see our downloads grow day by day and week by week, but it's also incredibly rewarding to hear from you, some of you who are even former students of mine from decades ago. Often I hear about the unique challenges listeners have faced in the evangelical world. Certainly I'm no stranger to many of these challenges. The sad fact is that even in 2023, figures like Bill Gothard have powered and sway, and new threats like the Brigade of Bigots at the Daily Wire have sprung up, spreading their own brand of hate infused with Christianity. I feel strongly that one of the reasons that this podcast is successful is that not only do we provide criticism of figures like Mike Walsh or Bill Gothard, we also show up a new path forward, a path that truly takes at face value the claim that God is love. It's so important to realize that what figures like Gothard and Walsh do is to create a world for their listeners. But it turns out it's a dark world where threats are everywhere, and the only way to counter them is by hatred, violence, and further circling the wagons. The title of our podcast, Unbecoming, comes from Nietzsche's life motto, Become Who You Are. As beings who constantly change, we're always developing. And as beings who are fundamentally social and relational, those who are around us, both physically and digitally, have a profound effect on how we change. The true danger of people like Bill Gothard and Matt Walsh is that they take the most bigoted aspects of conservative Christianity and supercharge them. Rather than making people less dogmatic and more open to inquiry, they close the world to their followers and make them far more dogmatic and sheltered. If you buy into the rhetoric that takes place on their programs, you stop developing. You become static, frozen in a world where darkness is constantly closing in and threats lurk just around the next corner. I'd like to invite you to take a different path. Just like Matt Walsh and Bill Gothard, we're creating a world but one where the spirit of charity is a greater power than the spirit of evil. The only thing that can truly fight radical hate is radical love. While what is happening right now is incredibly dangerous, it seems like every day a new story emerges about conservative Christianity tending more towards theocracy and further from the teachings of Jesus. The best and most Christian response is to be willing to forgive and to offer a path for redemption. As my Catholic friends might say, hate the sin, not the sinner. But until we get to such a point, we need to put up a fight. We need to argue against hate and for love. We need to call bad theology and bigoted philosophy out for what it is, yet also show how good theology and more reasonable philosophy can show us a path forward. In short, we need to continue doing what I've been attempting to do on this podcast. Perhaps at this point you're wondering how you can get involved. I'm really looking to build a community with this podcast, so I always enjoy hearing from you. 
perhaps just a note to let me know that you're listening, or a lengthy critique of a recent or past episode, or anything in between. I've received some letters from you that have greatly gladdened my heart. At the same time, the kind of world building that I'm trying to do doesn't always come cheap. You may have noticed that our podcast is meticulously recorded and edited. Not only is recording equipment and editing software pricey, but this is my full-time job. I no longer have the stable income of a university professor. So if you can, would you consider helping us build this community? If you find the podcast helpful to your own journey of becoming, please consider following or subscribing the podcast. If you'd like to support us, please do so at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or at paypal at onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. That's right, our email address. After spending a week on the subject of apologies, this week we turned to forgiveness. I had lunch with someone today in which we were talking about the centrality of forgiveness to everyday life. She and I agreed that without apology and forgiveness, community is simply impossible. Being able to apologize, to apologize in a real sense that conveys an understanding of the wrong done and true remorse, is so important to our friendships, relationships with family, and even our relationships with people who are less close to us. Apologizing is hard. So is forgiveness. This week, I'd like to talk about various things that often get labeled as forgiveness, but I think don't quite qualify for the term. In other words, just as the focus last week was on things that might sound like apologies, but aren't, so the focus this week is on the things we might think count as forgiveness, but that aren't actually forgiveness. Of course, let me say in advance, for some of us, given the situation in which we find ourselves, the kind of forgiveness which we would like to see take place may not be possible. If people offer us a fake apology, we shouldn't feel an obligation to forgive. We may, of course, decide to do so anyway, often for practical reasons. One of the most obvious kinds of cases in which forgiveness in its strong sense is impossible is when people think that they have done nothing wrong or that the wrong done wasn't really all that important. Or perhaps the offending person is no longer alive, which means that reconciliation literally is not possible. To be sure, there are many instances in which the wrong done is at least comparatively not that significant. But there are likewise many cases in which people who claim that they didn't mean to hurt you should have realized that the things that they said or did are hurtful. I want to begin today's episode with a quote from Slavoj Žižek. If you've never heard of Žižek, you might find it worth your while to spend a little time on the internet. There are all kinds of videos of him speaking. When I went to pick him up to take him to dinner before his talk, the first thing he said to me when he got into my car was, How do they oppress you here, comrade? I'll leave out my response. But the next morning, we went to a little breakfast place in town called Eclectic. So here we are, sitting in a place that is a long way away from Slovenia, where Zizek grew up. We had a marvelous, far-ranging discussion. And then at a certain point, he asked me what I was working on. When I told him that my book was on Nietzsche, particularly his relationship to Christianity, Slavoj's eyes lit up. He asked me, can I write a blurb for your book? Let me say that the idea of asking him to write a blurb had been so far from my mind that I was absolutely shocked. 
I would never ask someone I had only barely met to write a blurb, but he came through with an incredibly powerful one. By the way, just in case this is a question for you, no, Zizek does not consider himself to be a Christian, even though he actually has many wonderful and complimentary things to say about Christianity. He is an atheist, but he's not in the business of trying to get you or anyone else to be an atheist. In fact, one of his dialogue partners is the theologian John Milbank, who's also a friend of mine. Anyway, Zizek has this incredible knack for taking ordinary things and coming up with really interesting interpretations. Here's one that I thought was appropriate for this discussion. On today's market, we find a whole series of products deprived of their malignant property. Coffee without caffeine, cream without fat, beer without alcohol, and the list goes on. What about virtual sex as sex without sex? Today's tolerant liberal multiculturalism as an experience of the other deprived of its otherness. Virtual reality simply generalizes this procedure of offering a product deprived of its substance. In the same way, decaffeinated coffee smells and tastes like the real coffee without actually being the real one. Virtual reality is experienced as reality without being one. Is this not the attitude of today's hedonistic last man? Everything is permitted. You can enjoy everything, but deprived of its substance, which makes it dangerous. Forgiveness, like mercy, is dangerous. It is dangerous to the one who forgives and the one who receives it. Why? For one thing, forgiveness requires a recognition, often a very painful recognition, of just how bad something, to use the words of the Book of Common Prayer, things done and left undone actually turn out to be. To forgive, we must first come to terms with the gravity of the situation, and this is often no easy task. It is also existentially daunting because facing up to how one has been damaged or how one has damaged others threatens the comfortable lie we often tell to ourselves that at the end we're good people. But there's a third problem. Forgiving others can unfortunately be taken by them as a license to do the same or something even worse again. The reasoning goes, if I've been forgiven once, why not try for a second time? St. Paul gets to the heart of this logic. He writes, should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. That's Romans, by, by the way, that's Romans chapter 6, 1 through 2. I prefer translations that put this as, may it never be. But forgiveness can never provide an ironclad guarantee against this danger, which is a danger to both the person who forgives and the one who is forgiven. A fourth problem. Forgiveness is dangerous because at the moment that it takes place, one can fail to grasp the implications for how one in turn may act. Here's what I mean. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's something that could be taken to be something like, if you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you. Indeed, such a reading could be reinforced by the parable of the unmerciful or wicked servant, in which a servant who owes the king 10,000 talents asks for mercy and is completely forgiven of his debt. But then he immediately demands 100 denarii of a fellow servant. Among other things, the parable turns on the fact that 100 denarii is the equivalent of about four months' worth of work and 10,000 talents is the equivalent of about 
100,000 years of work. The king hears about this lack of mercy and throws the unforgiving servant into prison with the stipulation that he remain there until he has paid back his entire debt to the king. As you can imagine, this servant can pretty well plan on being there until he dies. Jesus' own gloss on the story is, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. But this story is set in a particular context. Peter is asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. I think this passage is deliberately designed to be difficult and challenging. It could be simple if Jesus simply gave up the first bit about forgiving, in effect, without ceasing. It would likewise be simple if Jesus simply said the bit about God treating us exactly as we have treated others. But I don't think this is intended to be simple. It is intended paradoxically. On the one hand, there are two things that are juxtaposed but don't seem to fit in any meaningful way. In a nutshell, we have the problematic relationship between justice and mercy. On the other hand, these are two things that simply in themselves seem a bit crazy. Really, I'm supposed to forgive my brother, neighbor, enemy over and over and over? Really? God is so petty that he would treat us exactly like we've treated others when in reality he hasn't followed that plan before? Mercy isn't about desert. I don't think that forgiveness is either. However, I think these two paradoxes are at the heart of the phenomenon of forgiveness. On the one hand, forgiveness requires the anal retentive exacting accountant who is utterly aware of the gravity of the situation and keeps meticulous records. She doesn't forget anything. There is no slush fund. On the other hand, St. Paul tells us that the one who loves keeps no record of wrongs. She is not an accountant. She loses track. She's a bit absent-minded. She is, one might say, sloppy. Forgiveness is way too challenging to be treated in just a few episodes. The only way we could do that would be to talk about a very simple idea of forgiveness, one which does not reflect the actual phenomenon of forgiving. This point has to do with such problems as intersubjectivity, the idea that we are mutually constituted, and how blame is often never simply mine or yours. Number two, how I and how you, how I am other to myself and how you are other to yourself. In other words, there's no unified self so that I'm never at one with myself. You could look at Romans chapter 7 for details on this, or simply the fact that we ourselves composed of different parts. Number three, how the self that once was remains connected to and is yet disconnected from the self that is now. In other words, your passport tells you that, yes, you're the same person, but you also realize that who you are now and the person you were when you first got that passport or the first time you got your passport, you are both the same person that you have always been and yet also, at the same time, a different person. And number four, the inexplicable nature of forgiveness, namely that forgiveness is ultimately a gift, an act of grace. So in what follows, I will limit myself to focusing almost entirely on what we might call faux forgiveness, 
forgiveness light or forgiveness without caffeine, cream, and alcohol. My focus will be on five types of forgiveness avoidance. The first one is moving on. The second one is evolving memory. The third is changing the calculation. Number four, excusing by understanding. And number five, balancing the books. I've chosen the subtitle on faux forgiveness for a very specific reason. When one who speaks English learns French, one discovers that there are faux amis, false friends. These are words in French that are spelled either identically or close enough to English words that one is apt to think one already knows what they mean. Your agenda in French is where you write your private thoughts. It's not where you schedule your day. Actuellement might appear to be the French version of actually, but it actually means at present. However, I'm extending this idea of faux amis to conceptions or definitions of forgiveness that turn out to be incorrect, either because they miss what forgiveness actually is about, or else they substitute one aspect of forgiveness for forgiveness as a whole. The latter case is an instance of what I think we can call, and I confess I have made this up, a philosophical microcosm synecdoche. Now, in synecdoche, we refer to a part as a way of referring to the whole. If you say to someone, will you give me a hand, or let's give them a hand, you're not requesting someone to give up a body part. You are using a body part to refer to a whole. Will you lend me your whole body is a strange thing to ask, but that's literally what will you give me a hand really means, especially if you're moving furniture. That's what linguists tell us about a synecdoche, which is a form of metonymy, but I don't want to get into that here. For our purposes, the concern is with the ways in which these aspects of forgiveness are taken to be the essence or substance of forgiveness. However, I don't think this kind of synecdoche is benign. Instead, I think it is a way to avoid actually forgiving. Let me be very clear about my claim. I'm suggesting that we have various forms of faux forgiveness that, like faux me, look like the real thing, but are actually just poor substitutes. We get the rich aroma and the flavor of forgiveness, but there isn't anything really there. My goal is to provide a phenomenological description of these forms of forgiveness that actually fall short of forgiving precisely because they lack the ingredient or perhaps ingredients that make something count as forgiveness. We will see that there is no danger in this kind of forgiving. Indeed, it's exactly the opposite. Such forgiving is designed to obviate the need for real forgiveness. It is forgiveness without forgiveness. But the important point is that it's a stand-in for forgiveness that attempts to get rid of any danger. It is something utterly banal and inane, which is precisely why we want it. We want the banal out of the fear of the real thing with its malignant property. By examining these forms of faux forgiveness, we will start, barely you might say, to get an idea of what forgiveness really is. It should emerge that forgiveness is paradoxical and ultimately impossible to comprehend. In that respect, forgiveness takes its place among all of the things that we most value in life. Love is so unsusceptible to precise definition. It is mysterious, which is why we love it all the more. Similarly, the value of human life cannot be given by definition a price tag, which is why payouts by insurance companies and judgments in courts of law over compensation for death 
while necessary, are also obscene. All right. Our first form of faux forgiveness is what I call moving on. Now, I admit that I have come to the question of forgiveness kicking and screaming. It is to say, not in my blood. When I was in my early 20s, I finally read Anne of Green Gables, a book written by my distant ancestor, Lucy Maud Montgomery. My grandmother was Mabel Montgomery Ellis, and as far back as I can remember, at least to the age of five, the two of us argued back and forth as long as she was alive. She lived to be 96. But when I read Lucy Maud writing about Anne, I understood so much about the Montgomery spirit. The famous poet Robert Burns described the Montgomery clan as a martial race, bold, soldier-featured, and undismayed, and its motto is Gardebien, which means something a little different than it does in actual French. This means something more like watch closely or even be on guard. Anne is a very determined person. The positive version of this trait is called perseverance. The negative version of this trait is called stubbornness. While this attribute is crucial to Anne's academic success, the downside is that she's terrible at letting go. Early on in school, a boy named Gilbert pulls her red hair and calls her carrots. Her response, you mean, hateful boy, how dare you? And then she whacks him on the head with her school slate and it cracks in two. This being fiction, she eventually marries him and they have seven children. But this recognition only comes after years of unwillingness to forgive on her part, despite many profuse apologies by Gilbert and a resulting silence between them. I often tell people I meet that I work on forgiveness because I'm not very good at it. You'd be surprised at how many people, once I've admitted my own weakness, confided me that they're no good at it either. I haven't seen a study to this effect. But what I've found among my students when I've taught unforgiveness is that they usually equate this with moving on and letting go. To forgive just is to move on. You'll find this sort of advice in self-help books. One of my best but most honest students told me that if forgiveness involves more than moving on, he figures he's never forgiven anyone in his life. I wonder how well any of us have ever forgiven anyone and instead assumed that forgiveness is more or less getting over being angry with people who've wronged us. The idea that letting go is the same as forgiveness is, I think, the most common and attractive form of faux forgiving. We just get over it. We get on with our lives. It's so much easier and less complicated than any actual forgiving. Here I need to say something important, very important, about moving on. For many people in many situations, the best they can do, at least for now, is move on. They may be, at least for the moment, incapable of actual forgiving. We should not be hard on those for whom this move is the better option than allowing hate and resentment to fester. Certainly that is a much worse state in which to be. Nietzsche gives us probably the most insightful account of resentiment, and it's not pretty. We're talking about Dorian Gray, sort of unpretty. Or you, if you wish a contemporary example, Donald Trump works quite well. If you read texts about Trump by those who've been close to him, you can see that almost everything he does springs from resentiment or resentment that is based on a perceived slight from others. People outside of New York do not understand how much New Yorkers hate him and how he has been mercilessly ridiculed by upper-class society for not being one of them. 
You can simply look at pictures of Trump to see the resentment on his face. He's not very good at hiding it. So if the Donald could simply get over these slights, he would be making huge progress. But here's the problem. Moving on is first and foremost about me. I want to get on with my life, but I'm not willing to face the mess made either by someone else or by me or by both of us together, which is unfortunately often the case. Instead, I'm just forgetting about it, perhaps even pretending that it's something that never really happened. And you can see why this move is so attractive, and you can also see why it is really only faux forgiveness. It doesn't require either me or the person who's wronged me to recognize what's actually been done. It doesn't require those awkward kinds of conversations that need to occur in the wake of wrongdoing. There are differing ideas about exactly what truth and reconciliation means, but in moving on, there need be neither truth nor reconciliation. To be fair, moving on may not simply be about me. It may be that a family member or friend or colleague is sick and tired of me griping about how much so-and-so has hurt me, and so that person has a stake in me moving on too. So moving on is not necessarily totally selfish. It may even have the concern for others as a partial motivation. After all, why should they suffer just because I'm suffering? Misery likes company, but compelling others to be miserable is itself a wrong. Moving on is also a strategy for dealing with people who've wronged you who, number one, don't know they wronged you. Number two, are dead or distant enough that any real reconciliation is out of the question. Or three, people who are adamantly unrepentant and have no desire for reconciliation. I don't mean this to be an exhaustive list, but let's be clear. In all three of these cases, the best moving on can be is a coping strategy. It is never forgiveness. However, I think moving on is connected to forgiveness in the following way. If you are able to forgive someone, you will probably, at least eventually, be able to move on. I don't mean this in any Pollyannish sort of way, for moving on, even after forgiveness, is often still difficult. Yet the phenomenon of moving on does tell us something important about what real forgiveness involves. The problem is that moving on is the fruit of forgiveness. It's a byproduct state that cannot be achieved directly any more than wanting to fall asleep makes you fall asleep. Moving on is like the desire to have the benefits of friendship without actually having to be someone's friend. We move on to get the benefits of forgiveness, like lower anxiety, better sleep, less depression, better blood pressure, and generally more cheerful frame of mind. But of course, in doing so, we studiously avoid forgiving. Number two, our second candidate of forgiveness, is what I'm calling evolving memory. In the time that remains, I want to just begin to talk about this. Moving on is something we do actively, yet something similar can occur passively. It may have the same result that we get over something, but it has a different cause. Nietzsche reminds us in his essay on history that both remembering and forgetting are necessary to healthy existence. The question for him is simply what and when. What things should we either remember or forget? And when should we remember or forget them? Time heals all wounds, we are told. 
What neuroscientists show us is that memories of trauma can be delinked over time from our emotions. That is, we can come to remember them without them causing acute emotional trauma. Our memories are not like a file cabinet in which we can simply take out of the manila folder of past experiences and relive them just as they happened. Instead, in the very process of reliving them, we are changing them. Memories are revised over time in light of our current situation. I'm not saying that this is some conscious thing that we do. It's, in fact, largely unconscious, though we may choose to focus on different features of our remembered experiences and thus reorient them. I'm simply saying that current neuroscience shows that memories are fluid. Over time, then, our memories are altered. This is not simply about the fish that keeps getting bigger every time the story of its being caught is retold. It is about how we remember. We can retell to others, or simply to ourselves, the story of how awful Gilbert was in pulling Anne's hair, and with each retelling, the gravity of the offense increases in offensiveness. Resentiment is fed and nourished. Or we can remember features of that nasty moment that soften its nastiness, perhaps a gesture of kindness that was previously overlooked, or gestures of kindness offered since that help put that dreaded act into a different perspective. Those who've experienced the bereavement of lost loved ones know well how grief comes back to us in moments like waves of the sea. Each time these moments of grief return, they grow a little less painful. Reliving them becomes, at first, barely palatable, and then slowly the memories of the loved one can become more like moments of joy that connect us to the loved one rather than moments of torture. But memory, like everything else, is constantly in motion. Oddly enough, we can maintain the spirit of raisonnement, even the spirit of revenge, long past the time when we remember even what it was that happened to us that made us so angry. We can still hate someone even though we no longer really know what it was that he or she did. But we can also come to forget the offense at some point in time. And remembering is not a completely passive act. We can choose how closely to hold our memories. We can make decisions to minimize memories. But that's all we have for today. I will have much more to say about this aspect of evolving memory in the next episode. If you found today's episode helpful or interesting, consider supporting the podcast at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or through paypal.com or the PayPal app. The username for both of those is our email address, which is onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Or just follow us or click subscribe. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and I hope you'll join us for our continuing exploration of forgiveness.